Hey, everybody, it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. And today on our show, 2468, Why Do We Depilitate? We're going to be talking about body hair, from the short and curly to the soft and silky, and from pits to pubes. And more specifically about our long-running, ever-escalating, take-no-prisoners fight to rid ourselves of said fuzz by just about any and all means, including burning, abrading, slicing, uprooting, chemically dissolving, hormonally suppressing, electrocuting, lasering, and even, as you're going to hear today, the nuclear option. It seems that we will stop at nothing in our pursuit of being less hirsute. But why such hostility? Why such aversion that perhaps has even some of you out there right now wrinkling your noses and wondering if you want to keep listening to a radio show that involves body hair? Well, that is what we're going to be exploring today with someone who knows a great deal about the subject, maybe more than just about anybody else in the world. Well, Rebecca, it is so nice to have you back on the show. Oh, thank you. It is really terrific to be here, Robert. And uh, let us introduce you to our audience. You are Rebecca Herzig. Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies at Bates College in Maine, a historian and the author of the new book, Plucked, (laughs) A History of Hair Removal, fresh off the press. Plucked, A History of Hair Removal. And uh, let's stipulate at the very outset here that we mean hair below the scalp line. Yes. So facial hair, neck hair, chest hair, armpit hair, back hair, crack hair, pubic hair, (laughs) leg hair, toe hair. Exactly. Eyebrows, eyelashes as well. Ear hair and nose hair, I suppose you could add to the list. (laughs) Yeah, let's throw that in too. Um, And before we talk about the book specifically, um, I just want to tell you that it has had an effect on me. I noticed uh, yesterday that I was unconsciously checking people out to see, you know, Mm. where they had hair and where they didn't. I didn't push this to the point of, you know, like voyeurism, although I was looking at a guy's armpits at the gym last night and he gave me... Uh, the stink eye, and I realized, oh, I shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> what did you observe? Anything noteworthy? Uh, no, actually, just that the, the guys in my gym didn't seem to be shaving their armpits or doing anything like that. Okay. Now, I have no idea what they're doing in other parts of their body, and uh, I will never know. But your book has me thinking about these things, is all I'm saying. And you yourself thought about this a long time, and this was not necessarily an easy project for you. I know it took quite a while because I was aware you were writing this way back when I interviewed you about another book you wrote, um, gosh, I don't know, six years ago or more. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. uh, I've been sort of bugging you every now and then saying, hey, Rebecca, whatever happened to that book about hair removal? So what's the story, Rebecca? Uh, Well, I'm not sure I could actually tell you why it's stayed under my skin uh, for so long. I I can say it's it's been intriguing to just observe how – nervous I've been about writing the book and putting it out there. Uh, I like to think of myself as a very serious scholar, and there's something about hair removal that seems on the face of it just manifestly ridiculous. Um, But I I think as you dive into the book, you see that it actually is entangled, to use a kind of cheesy (laughs) (laughs) pun, um, with almost uh, everything of consequence you could imagine, militarism, uh, economic transformation, environmental degradation, racism, sexism, homophobia, just almost any issue you want to tackle is all in there. But I couldn't shake the feeling as I was writing it that I really should be working on something else. And I think there's a lot to learn just in that. Why Why is it 
kind of a stigmatized or uh, laughable subject. Um, and I'm not sure I even got to the bottom of that question, even after working on the book for so long. Um, but I never felt anything similar working on even very dry scholarly topics, only this one. Um, and I think that's just noteworthy in itself. I think so, too. And uh, it, it jumped out at me when I was reading a, a couple of anecdotes you have about talking to people uh, and telling them what you were working on and getting reactions like a friend of yours saying, drop the hair thing, Beck. Mm -hmm, it's stupid. Mm -hmm. And then <laughs> I love this one. Uh, around that time, I happened to be seated next to a famous sociologist during the lunch break of a small professional workshop. He dutifully inquired what I was working on. I replied with some tentativeness that I was thinking about pursuing a monograph on body hair. He recoiled perceptively. Well, I suppose everyone has to work on something, he said, turning his chair away from me abruptly to emphasize the end of our exchange. I spent the rest of the meal in embarrassed silence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, this is something it's it's interesting because I've talked with a lot of friends and colleagues who've worked on other topics that uh, are m manifestly stigmatized sexual practices that are considered deviant or even illegal um, in some parts of the world, uh, child sexual abuse, things that, you know, just just kind of create discomfort in readers automatically. And and they haven't encountered similar opposition to scholarly work on the subject. And even when I've taken up subjects which seem uh, on the surface of it, marginal or um, lowbrow even, I haven't encountered anything similar. There really is something specific about body hair that seems to raise people's disgust level or revulsion level. Um, and certainly not all people, obviously. I've had great conversations with professional estheticians and cosmetologists, and, you know, they, they're comfortable with the subject and they can talk about it at ease with me. But um, certainly in academic circles, it's it's somehow too – I don't even want to say too close to the body because the body is a kind of hot academic subject and has been for several decades at this point. But I still can't quite get my hands on it. There's something just a little bit too – animal, a little bit too dirty, a little bit too something. Um, so I, as I was writing on it, I kept having to confront those feelings in myself um, and, and press on. I got to wonder, Rebecca, if they would have had the same reaction, those people who, who recoiled or uh, dismissed you, if you had been a male, say, anthropologist or ethnographer, as opposed to a woman specializing in things like gender studies, do you think that the stigma is especially strong when it comes to the association of women and body hair, and they might have been unconsciously, you know, manifesting that? That's a really good question. Um, it's hard to know counterfactually. I, I think even more than maybe women and body hair, there is something specific about women working on subjects that are seen to be as cosmetic. Uh. And something I've noticed when reading other academic work on women and cosmetic subjects the scholars themselves almost always have a passage in the book that situates their own experiences with body image concerns. Uh -huh. I grew up feeling this way about this part of my body, and that's why I wrote this book, or people said this to me about this aspect of my body, and that's why I got interested in the subject. And I've never seen even men writing about cosmetic issues. I don't want to say never. Definitely it 
it happens. But that kind of need to self-situate is is not analogous to even women scholars writing about um, even reproductive technologies or something else that seems similarly close to the body. There's There's something about cosmetic questions that raise, I think this is what you're pointing to, kind of questions about um, women in vanity or women and um, superficiality that uh, might not necessarily be there if um, uh, if men were working on the subject or if women were working on other subjects. Well, if I ever encountered a scholar so-called who said, oh, what a trivial subject or what a gross subject, why bother? I would quote to them some of the statistics that you have in your book. Over the course of a lifetime, at least according to one 2008 survey, American women who shave will spend on average more than $10,000 in nearly two entire months of their lives simply managing unwanted hair. The woman who waxes once or twice a month will spend more than $23,000 over the course of her lifetime. And we could go on to say that the woman who does all those things and more spends even more money and more time. Right. Right, right, right. And that's just the time and money. As anybody who's ever removed hairs knows, there's all the accidental injuries or the um, not at all accidental, but unavoidable pain of the practice. Waxing is not super comfortable, especially if you're doing it on sensitive areas of the body. So that's on top of the time and the financial expense of it. There's also ancillary issues. I talk about some of them in the book um, uh, oh, yes. infections, post-waxing infections, and so on. Yeah, we will um, get to some of the more oh, good. <laughs> horrific and extreme uh, lengths to which people have gone to mm-hmm. uh, to denude themselves of hair. But first, let's, let's, let's go back historically. How long has this been going on? How long has this war against body hair, especially on women, been uh, waged by our fellow humans? Uh, it's a great question. In the book, I, I should clarify, I'm, I'm really focusing on the U.S. because yeah. the story of humans and hair is much, much bigger and longer. And classicists have written a lot about uh, depilatory practices in, say, ancient Athens. Um, I leave some of those topics aside because other people have written about them. Right. But I couldn't help but wonder. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, they go all the way back. Um I haven't been able to find a culture in any time or location that hasn't had some investment in body hair of some kind. As far as I've been able to detect, it doesn't mean I haven't missed something, but it's fairly universal. But that's where kind of cross-cultural similarity ends. Which hair people (laughs) have been concerned about, on which kinds of bodies, at what life stage, and for what reasons, that varies immensely. And just in the U.S., the focus of the study, one of the things that uh, was so intriguing to me is when the nation was first founded in the 18th century, most whites, so people of European descent, were not interested in hair removal at all. And they tended to see the practice as something really peculiar. That would be the word they used, even perverse. Um, That was a distinctive attribute of the native peoples in the U.S. So the people, Native Americans, um, they saw hair removal as something that was distinctive to them, to indigenous peoples. And it was actually a central part of early racial science was trying to figure out whether Native American people were less hairy naturally um, or whether they were less hairy than the Europeans who were observing them 
because they were busy plucking out all their hair. <laughs> and I know um, the Native Americans certainly re- remarked that the Europeans seemed pretty hairy. Yes, yes. And, and from what few sources I was able to find, the Native Americans found the European colonized to be quite disgusting for that reason, <laughs> very animal-like, um, and couldn't figure out why they wouldn't take care of themselves properly. So the attitude among the early white settlers was that hair removal was a peculiarity of other people, of the Native people that they were encountering. It was not normal practice among people of European descent. Even the women at that time. Most of the records that I was able to find were being kept by the men. It's hard to know exactly what daily practice was among their wives or mothers or sisters or daughters. It does look, though, however, like European women were making their own depilatories, um, have been for many, many centuries, even in the 18th century, were making homemade depilatories. So I think there was probably much more household hair removal going on among women of European descent than the men who were studying Native American men and women were even realizing <laughs> was mm-hmm. going on. But certainly it wasn't considered normal or routine practice for white Americans until well into the 20th century. Interesting, because if you look at the art, you know, the classical art, the, yes. uh, the high art, the paintings and sculptures that these people were exposed to, Europeans, I mean, uh, you know, nudes, especially female nudes, tended to be pretty hairless. Uh, and you'd think that maybe people would emulate those those looks just the way we tend to uh, emulate what we see in magazines and movies. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Although prior to the 19th century, I'm not sure how exposed uh, ordinary people would be, even to images of classical statuary. Um, you know, there there weren't um, widely reproduced magazines yet. They really came into being in the 19th century. Um, certainly as um, kind of visual media started taking off, um, more and more cheap circulars and more and more kind of diverse publications for different kinds of readers, you could start getting a few more images. But they were still mostly text-based until, again, pretty far into the 20th century. So the, the images of exposed hairless bodies weren't that common to the extent that they were they were mostly pornographic and i think that or religious yeah or religious that's true um and religious images of women in hair tended to focus actually on the hairiness of especially religious women mary magdalene early representations of mary magdalene were of her of extremely hairy um and the hairiness and her devoutness were kind of tied together. So there there wasn't the kind of easy association between hairlessness and godliness that certainly contemporary Americans kind of take for granted. Huh. Um, Christ himself in images doesn't appear to be particularly fuzzy uh, in most of them. <laughs> That's true, um, <laughs> other than the facial hirsuteness, yeah, I yeah, guess. But, yeah. um, <laughs> That's true. That's true. And it's an interesting point. I I don't know how to think about that iconography other than it highlights his youth. You know, he was only famously 33. And I think that was one of the things that's being accentuated in in that. Yeah. Um, Well, of course, those earlier ages are not the focus of your book. As you said, it's it's the U.S. And from the time when the settlers came all covered with um, body hair and uh, (laughs) were bemused by the uh, less hairy Native Americans, who, by the way, were the Native Americans, like, removing their hair? There's certainly a lot of evidence that they were, um, huh. including tools. Um, 
stone scrapers and wow. shell scrapers of various kinds, some wire tweezers um, for plucking. Um, there's some accounts by ethnologists at the time of um, singeing, you know, of singeing off skin by holding a kind of burning stick very close to the hair and so on. So, yeah, there's a there's quite a bit of evidence that people of um, various language groups um, were removing hair mm. all over, mm. <laughs> all over the body. Well, from that time uh, to, you know, a century or so later, uh, the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century, things really changed. You quote a historian as saying, body hair became disgusting to middle-class American women. It's removal in a way to separate oneself from cruder people, lower class, and immigrants. Yes. In the book, I trace a lot of the kind of pivot in terms of American attitudes towards hair to the influence of Darwinian ideas um, that in the wake, not of the origin of species, but his later work, The Descent of Man, that mm -hmm. really had to do with how to explain racial and sexual differences. Once those ideas really kind of started taking hold, there was a, a greatly increased interest in separating oneself from all things connected to animals. Mm -hmm. um, and hair, certainly body hair, became part of that. And what I trace in the book is how, after kind of Darwinian ideas take hold, other medical scientific specialties start pathologizing hair, um, sexology. On women especially. On women especially, right, right. And started making elaborate charts on how hairy certain immigrant groups were, on how hairy certain criminal classes of people were, on how hairy uh, people that they would call sexually deviant were. And so you get a kind of general groundswell. Oh, and I left out a major category. People who were political extremists were seen as being, especially women, especially hairy. So there was a, a general kind of coalescing of animosity towards visible hairiness as a sign of deviance or criminality or extremism of some kind. Or, or just, you know, brutishness. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> reverting to an earlier animal ancestor being a, a missing link, you know. Exactly, exactly. Atavism, basically, Atavism. of various kinds, yeah. So a lot of anxiety about um, being connected to apes, and uh, the hairier you were, maybe the greater the anxiety. Although, again, we have to say that it was okay for guys to be quite woolly. A lot of this was just focused on women, right? Yes, yes. There remain, even though obviously male hair removal practices are, have been changing quite a lot just in the last 10 years, there remain very strong uh, sexual and gendered differences in attitudes towards hair. Um, and there's a lot of explanations for that. In the book, again, I talk about how Darwin specifically was focused on sexual difference and the role of sexual difference in making other kinds of bodily differences. And that's a key part of the descent of man. Um, so I think you can trace a lot of it back to there, but but certainly very different ideas about expectations for men and women um, and why. And I should clarify that physicians, scientists, the other people who are writing a lot about this were really clear when they had ideas about women they had ideas about young women specifically, women of reproductive age, and this is where the Darwinian fitness stuff becomes so important. They didn't really care about hairiness on women of post-reproductive age. Um, they didn't see anything particularly strange about 
um, older women having slight mustaches or beard whiskers or anything. But for women of reproductive age, there was a strong uh, expectation that they should be perfectly smooth. This was not only the early days of evolutionary theory, but it was also the early days of psychiatry yep. and you know modern psychology. And those characters, the beginning of the 20th century, Freud, his like, um, were obsessed with sexual differentiation, with sexual deviation, and what they called sexual inversion. Um, yes. Like, they seemed to think that sexual confusion, women being too much like men or men being too much like women, was the source of a lot of psychological dysfunction. Yes. Uh, so that played into the, the concern with hairiness, too, on women, you know, a male yes. trait, a male, so-called male trait uh, on a woman. Yes. And equally so, I should say, a lot of those early sexologists and psychologists and psychiatrists were studying men as well. And they were, in a way, just as concerned about what they saw as um, under hairiness, right, as too little hair on men as a sign of effeminacy um, and sexual inversion, uh, to use the language they would use. Um, and they would make elaborate charts about just how much hair was too little or too much on men or women. And they debated amongst themselves whether female inverts were truly hairier than non-inverts. You know, they would have these complicated debates, but body hair was crucial for them as they made these taxonomies of normalcy and pathology. And this is also the time of uh, circus freaks who, who yes. maybe had uh, conditions of extreme hairiness. The dog-faced men and bearded ladies. Yes, yes. And one of the things I trace in the book is how representations of unusually hairy people changed in the wake of Darwin. Um, people had been exhibited um, in various ways prior to Darwin's popularity in the United States. But after Darwin, those people tended to be described less frequently as wonders of nature um, or miraculous um, beings in that sort of way, and instead as missing links connecting mm man to ape mm. in a vivid way. Um, and exhibited and so that, like animals. At, like animals. Yeah. They they had often been exhibited like animals prior to this, but mm. um, but the rhetoric ar around those displays changed in that language that we're now familiar with, that kind of missing link um, idea. But that was not necessarily used really before evolutionary ideas seeped into the broader culture. So you've got people worried about being classed among the, the lower animals if they're too mm -hmm. hairy. You have people worried about being found psychologically abnormal. Mm -hmm. I mean, gee whiz, the anxieties that are heaped on some of these physical traits. So I guess it's no wonder that some of the measures they went to were so crazy and extreme. Let's talk about some of the hair removal techniques that were being um, refined in the 20th century. There were good old-fashioned depilatories, which, as you said, go way back. Yep. Uh, you even yep. include a, a recipe from an, a book um, from 1540 called The Birth of Mankind, a book on uh, midwifery. But in the 20th century, things really got going. Industrial strength depilatories, chemicals yep. that dissolve yep. or burn away hair. Exactly. And some of them turned out to be downright lethal. Um, one of the most famous in this respect was a depilatory called Kremlu that was actually made with thallium acetate, um, which had systemic 
effects um, for the people who used it, who, you know, who would just apply it to the skin, but it would move all through the body. Um, and people got all kinds of tremors and seizures and so on. And, and quite a number of people died from using Karemlu. Um, and it was one of the products, not the only one, but one of the products that actually led to the creation of the things we now know of as food and drug regulations, um, because so many people were just purchasing these what seemed to be very banal products and would become permanently maimed or um, killed. And again, mostly young women were the people who were suffering. Wow. And even the non-lethal ones still included things that were quite corrosive. Um, I looked up the ingredients uh, to Nair, you know, the best known modern yes. depilatory. Uh, lime and lye, <laughs> both, yes. you know, caustic chemicals. Yeah. And you can still, even in contemporary medical literature, find a lot of instances of um, people seriously injured or even killed by using contemporary depilatories, usually in ways that are not indicated on the packaging. So they're used for too long, you know, they're left on the skin for too long, or they're left on parts of the skin that are unusually sensitive, like under the testicles. Um, but you can find a lot of cases of se severe ulceration, um, you know, skin injury and so on. And from time to time, you can find cases of people committing suicide by by ingesting depilatories of these kinds. Let's talk about some of the other techniques that emerged in this mania to get hair off of mostly women's bodies. This is the one that you told me about years ago that helped spark your interest in this subject. And uh, it was so amazing to me that that's why I kept bugging you all these years to see when your book would be done. The use of x-rays to remove hair, facial hair mostly, right, on women. Yes. Yeah. This is the kind of hook that drew me in. I was poking around in a business library looking up just the kind of business history of a device called the Epilady, which some listeners might remember had been popular in the 80s. Um, it was a handheld device that kind of yanked hair out by the roots. It, it was like was this, only... this spring that would rotate and just yes, pull hair out. Ex exactly, exactly. And with all the pain that one might imagine. Yeah, it, I saw it on <laughs> late night infomercials and it looked horrible. Oh, it was horrible. And it was immensely popular for about one holiday gift giving season. And then everyone tried it and no one ever bought another one. Um, but as I was looking up, just I was thinking about writing a little paper on the economic kind of history of that device. One of the articles talking about it had a just a throwaway line in there that, of course, this isn't the worst thing people have done to remove hair. They used to use x-rays. And I thought, if that's true, why haven't I heard about that? And it didn't take much poking at all to realize that it was true. And it was immensely popular all over North America, U.S., Canada, U.S. territories. You could have found in the 1920s and 30s x-ray salons where customers would go in and sit in front of an x-ray machine um, for what to us now sounds like a just unbelievable amount of time, you know, minutes, not seconds in <sighs> front of the x-ray machine. And they would go week after week and in much the same ways that radiation therapy can make hair fall out now, um, they would lose all their hair. In the exposed uh, areas. So In the exposed areas, yeah. And the effects, the carcinogenic effects of this practice were relatively slow to show up often. Some people would get um, what they would refer to as x-ray burns fairly immediately, but often, you know, the cancers would take a while to show up um, with all the repercussions that you can imagine, you know, just terrible, complex carcinomas of the jaw when they were getting 
hair on their lips or chins removed um, in their axillary glands because hairless armpits was became very popular in the 1920s. Women who got it on their legs or their pubic regions. I mean, you can imagine the kind of um, injuries that people suffered. Um, and it turned out to be a very difficult practice to stamp out for the same reasons that, say, tanning salons are difficult to stamp out now. Regulation is done state by state. Enforcement is very difficult, even if you manage to get laws changed. Um, it was very widespread. Um, it's difficult to estimate exactly how many people might have done it, but certainly tens of thousands and probably hundreds of thousands. And, and if so, people. has anyone estimated how many women died or were or injured? Yes, although, again, hard numbers to come up with um, because some of the women, as they suffered these, or and men who used the technique, as people suffered from it years later, wouldn't reveal, you know, what they had done or they sometimes didn't even connect it because oh. they were told by the salon operators that this was perfectly harmless. Oh, um, wow. So uh, two physicians writing about this um, in the late 80s called the kind of syndrome of effects that they were seeing from people who would use the technique North American Hiroshima Maiden Syndrome, naming it after the young women who were injured by the uh, atomic attacks in Japan uh, that ended World War II. Um, they said they were very similar kinds of patterns of injury to the two groups of people. Um, so they gave it a name all its own. It was so widespread as they were seeing it. And, and I just want to underline that these x-ray salons persisted well past a point at which people knew radiation was really dangerous because radiologists, as you and I have discussed with your previous book, Suffering for Science, scientists who worked with radiation were, you know, destroying their tissues, having limbs amputated and dying from cancer in the early part of the century. So it boggles the mind to think that these x-ray salons were even legal right into, what, the 1930s and even 40s in some places. Absolutely. Yeah, the the first people started dying from overexposure to x-rays already in the 1890s. Wow. Um, and some of those deaths, Thomas Edison's primary assistant died from x-radiation. So these were enormously well publicized, as you might imagine. You know, Thomas Edison, one of the most famous Americans of all time. Um so it it would be hard to argue that no one understood that x-rays could be hazardous um and already you know professional physicians and physicists and researchers were using various shields of different kinds and so on so a lot of the salons um would advertise their machines as not connected to the x-ray as saying it's a new kind of light or it's a new kind of ray um and I think it would be very difficult for clients coming in off the street to to know um, what they were being exposed to. Sometimes they would be kept behind a kind of a walnut box. You couldn't even see the equipment, even if you knew anything about x-ray equipment. So you can see why this could be so um, widespread. Um, mm. But immensely, immensely popular advertisements in daily newspapers and women's magazines, again, all over the country. And... From what I could tell, um, women of all different economic classes would use this technique. They were advertised heavily in um, non-English newspapers and on uh, non-English radio programs. So in some cities, they were trying to target immigrant populations specifically. Um, working class women reported being given discounts if they brought in a bunch of their coworkers from their factory or from their steno pool or what have you. 
so women, even though it was very, very expensive, women across kind of the economic strata were using the technique. You know, that may not be surprising either, given some of the other things that you point out in your book, that hairiness, as we kind of indicated earlier, was associated with the lower classes, with immigrants, Mm -hmm. that hairless women, especially, at least no visible body hair, were considered refined and uh, more desirable. And uh, so, you know, maybe going and getting hair removed was a a ticket to a better life, right? Yes, 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 yes. And the ads were pretty explicit in linking this um, to whiteness, um, Ah. that this was a way to literally enlighten yourself. And for women who are immigrating from places which were seen as only marginally white, uh, Jewish women, Italian women, Greek women, so on, in new waves of immigration in the early 20th century, to kind of try to claim the privileges of whiteness, economic, social, legal, and so on, seemed enormously appealing. Um, This was, of course, a period of intense Jim Crow segregation, uh, of intense anti-immigrant sentiment and immigration restriction. Um, Anti-miscegenation laws of various kinds were firmly in place. So um, I think the salons played on that racial rhetoric and tried to sell women whiteness, basically, um, using the latest scientific devices. Um, and and l- they p- push that idea of science um, really heavily. You know, not only is that, of course, politically kind of disgusting, but on a very basic level, it's just a lie, too. I mean, uh, hairlessness is certainly not uh, correlated with whiteness in any way, you know? Well, yeah, I, this is one of the things that makes the book so interesting to me is is how is hair racialized? It's not in a simple or singular way, and it shifts over time. Um, and one of the things that I didn't talk much about in the book, but I, I hope somebody might pick up and run with after this, is how if you think about the kind of st- standards or scales of humanity um, that American society tends to create and how um, bodies get arrayed on them. One of the things I find fascinating in popular culture are representations of space aliens. So the sort of superhuman beings that visit us, they're almost always hairless. That's right. Like deeply hairless, you know, smooth all the way from crown to feet. And uh, I just, you know, how to put that in our kind of racialized ideas of... Well, um, I think that's, I think, I've always thought that was an extrapolation from some really simplistic Darwinian idea. So our ancestors were hairy. We're less hairy. So um, future people, including aliens, and by the way, they also have bigger heads, which is (laughs) extrapolated from our larger craniums. Uh, They have bigger hands, again, extrapolating, you know, from our idea of humans being more manual than our ancestors and uh, and less hair. So I always thought it was that. Right. And they have thinner, more delicate bodies as well. Yes. Well, and I've seen some people, you know, because there are whole fields of people who work on alien Representations oh, oh, really? of aliens. Yeah. So <laughs> some fields. people have talked about this also talk about the uh how they're they're seen as more infantile right. aliens. Right. Um yeah. uh, you know, and kind of complicated ideas about um ontogeny, reproducing phylogeny. Exactly, so yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um we talked about radiation, we talked about corrosive chemicals, a few other techniques uh that the twentieth uh, century gave us, brought us, uh, electrolysis. Early electrolysis, I'm guessing, was a pretty crude and awful affair too, or hazardous at least. Uh, yes, although it's actually one of the uh, one of the earlier techniques and of the ones that are still with us, it has 
probably the the longest track record of success in a way. Um, it actually started in right around the time Darwin was writing the Descent oh, so of pre, Man, and I find that century. very huh. interesting. Yeah. And was practiced by physicians in at a time when chemical depilatories were still mostly used by people in the household. Uh, so it was one of the first medical hair removal practices. Uh, and you're right. It was definitely an off-putting practice in the early years. The early electrolysis equipment often sparked and snapped um, you know, and would send electrical sparks visibly through the air and would make a loud noise. Um, and one of the things that fascinated me is women would be, or men who are using the technique, would be responsible for closing the electrical circuit themselves by either grabbing an electrode with their hand or dipping their fingers into pots of water. Part of the reason for this was that then the client could control the intensity of the current and therefore the intensity of the pain by either grabbing uh, onto the electrode more tightly, you know, with more fingers or removing them. Assuming and they weren't it, paralyzed by the electricity. Oh, my gosh. It's just an, it's amazing when you see pictures of how this <laughs> worked. Um, and the discussions that then physicians would have about which kinds of women had the stamina to grab onto the electrode more firmly, you know, namely which kind of women could handle more pain. And you, as you might imagine, this broke down along class and race and citizenship lines. You know, they talked about hardy immigrants being able to deal with the pain more than uh, affluent native-born women. Just fascinating stories about pain and um, beauty and how people thought about these issues. Mm. But the the early electrologists, both the medical and the non-medical ones, also themselves experienced the technique as being very painful. You know, you have to go follicle by follicle. You have to use really strong light to be able to see what you're doing. You're just putting a single needle into a single follicle over and over and over again with a patient or a client who's sometimes writhing in pain. So they found it very taxing themselves and would talk a lot about that in the literature. And just quickly to list a few other uh, interesting techniques. There was something called punching, which never caught on. (laughs) But this was like literally just sort of cutting away around the the hair follicle, just cutting away tissue. Yeah, like taking taking... a little circular knife and punching it through the skin until it, you know, surrounded the follicle. And then you could take the whole follicle out. Um, uh, This never really caught on so well. But one physician proposed it as a permanent solution to unwanted hair. Wow. And then, of course, there were hormone treatments. This was the... The time we're talking about, again, turn of the century, the the birth of endocrinology, uh, people started attributing all kinds of effects, including, of course, sexual characteristics uh, and sexual differentiation or lack thereof to to glandular effects. Yes. And people started experimenting with this fairly early on, crushing up animal glands and uh, making little concoctions out of them and giving them to people. Um, It didn't really take off as a formalized treatment for hair growth, you know, to arrest hair growth or to produce uh, more hair growth until the 1930s and really kind of picked up speed in the 1940s. But definitely people were experimenting with this right around the turn of the 20th century, cutting one gland out of one creature and putting it into another creature and that sort of thing. In terms of hair treatment, this was all to defeat a, a condition that had become sort of medicalized under the name hypertrichosis, being too hairy. Yes, yes, yes. Or later, as endocrinology really took hold, um, hirsutism. Um, Hirsutism. So hypertrichosis was the earlier 
diagnosis, um, hirsutism really came into its own in the 20th century. So, you know, you have all these forces pressing down on people, like I say, especially women. Men maybe were encouraged to shave their chins, but uh, no one was harping on their armpits or their legs or their chests, right? I mean, you look at movies right up through the 1950s, 60s, early James Bond movies, obviously hairy guys <laughs> were considered sexy, right? <laughs> right, right, right. But uh, to be fair, I think, you know, again, in the sexological literature, um, men who were institutionalized in various ways, incarcerated or in um, uh, institutions for the mentally ill and what have you, were often scrutinized and often treated, uh, you know, intervened with around hair growth, um, whether they were seen as being too hairy and, you know, brutish in that way, or whether they were seen as being not hairy enough and so effeminate or inverted or deviant in some way. So, you know, men, men <laughs> got their, got their share of, uh, scrutiny too. But yes, definitely in broader consumer culture, the attention was on young women's bodies, especially white women, especially younger women, reproductive age. And, and you know, the pressure to remove that hair by any means. Yes. Painful, yes. Uh, sometimes injurious, sometimes fatal, you know, and I assume a lot of it came down to being marriageable, right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And for a lot of the women in the period of the x-ray hair removal, even to feel employable. And they weren't wrong. You know, right up until the present day, you can find cases um, of women being fired from positions because they refuse to shave their legs, positions where their legs might be visible. Oh, not to mention facial hair. I mean, that would be enough to get you fired from a lot of jobs today, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So, and, you know, the marriageability was definitely a, a big theme in the medical literature. They were worried about women's reproductive fitness. But, you know, I think for the women, they were also worried about just experiencing stigma or discrimination or violence even on the street um, and certainly in their employability, you know, whether they could maintain employment if they had visible hair in places that weren't considered n n normal. And then there was that brief interlude. Uh, I think it was pretty brief in the 60s and <laughs> 70s. Uh, you know, with second wave feminism, right? And you point out, I didn't realize this, the very first issue of um, Ms. Magazine in 1972 actually targeted body hair. It had an article called Body Hair, The Last Frontier. Body hair, you know, is something that women had been burdened with taking care of and, and just another oppressive, you know, manifestation of patriarchy and all of that, right? Um, yes. And yeah, we had some feminists who decided... We're not going to put up with this crap anymore. We're going to let our hair grow. Uh, but that really didn't last very long. If you look around today, it, it's more extreme than ever, it seems to me. The hair removal, that is. I think that's right. And how that transition happened is an, an interesting story, I think. But but yes, that first issue of Ms. is so remarkable, I think. The announcement of that essay on body hair is right on the cover, um, and the cover's reproduced in the book. And from what I can tell, um, and talking to some of the principals who were around and remember it, that essay got more <laughs> attention from the magazine's reader than any of the other issues that they were talking about there. And they had essays on uh, the Vietnam War. They had essays on uh, women getting paid for household labor, childcare, that sort of thing. They had essays on lesbian love. They had essays on all kinds of things that you could imagine people would have responses to, but it was the body hair that <laughs> really got people distressed. So they weren't they weren't exaggerating when they said the last frontier. There's something about 
this very elemental thing that hits a nerve that goes way beyond a, a lot of political subjects, uh, ideological subjects that are normally discussed, right? Yes, yes. That's that's what I found in working on this book, at least. It touches a nerve is a good way to say it. Well, I, I want to ask you for your theory, and it, it may not be fair, uh, because you studiously avoid offering an overarching theory in your book. But I, I really do want to ask you, where do you think this comes from? Why body hair? Why such a fixation on it? Why such unbelievable amounts of money, labor, pain, as you say, blood, toil, and just, you know, the psychological anxiety. You have stories of women going into depression because they're too hairy, they think they are, committing suicide in some cases, or killing themselves trying to remove it. Mm-hmm. Where's mm-hmm. all this coming from? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, and and let me just throw away one idea that it's hygienic to remove all body hair. Yes, people who are removing their pubic hair are having fewer crab lice, but that has never caused us to shave our heads to avoid the the far more common threat of head lice. So it's clearly not motivated by some rational idea that, that hair is just, you know, unhygienic. Right, right. And I think, um, you know, that's one of the things that intrigues me most about this subject is um, the people who formally comment on trying to come up with uh, ideas for why this happens, they are sort of looking for broad, rational explanations for why this would be so prevalent. And um, I just think it, it does not have a clear function socially, evolutionarily, hygienically, and any of the ways that you might want to assess. And I talk about each of those in some length at the book. So the the big meta answer, um, I think, I think is something to keep puzzling over. Hmm. Um, and I hope people will get the book and, and puzzle over it themselves. I I certainly don't think you can say that this is evolutionary imperative, um, that there's something instinctual in us that makes us respond to smooth skin. As a historian, you can obliterate that article by that argument, excuse me, by just realizing how recent this is. You know, Americans have not been removing their hair um systemically like this for very long. Um, Certainly not all cultures in the world fetishize smooth bodies in the same way that contemporary American culture seems to do. So it's not, uh, uh, if you want to make an evolutionary imperative argument, you really need to look kind of more broadly at cross-cultural practices and it just doesn't hold up. What about the the classic feminist argument, though, that this is like foot binding and corsets and a million other ways in which women are controlled, um, boxed in, and forced to to spend their time in these idle cosmetic activities, you know, which disempower them. Um, As a gender studies professor, I'm certainly sympathetic to this argument. And when I first began project, it seemed hard to me to miss that investment you know, cultural investment in women's hairlessness seemed to be marching side by side along women's increasing political and economic enfranchisement. So there seemed to be, as women, again, very stratified by race and class and national position and so on, but as women got um, rights to control their own wages, as they slowly got rights to vote, as they slowly got rights to initiate divorce and maintain property in their own names and all these kinds of characteristic rights of economic and political self-governance, 
at the same time, the demands for them to manage their physical appearance seemed to be increasing. So now you were supposed to weigh a certain amount and you were supposed to have a certain kind of skin and you were supposed to have a certain kind of teeth and you were supposed to have a certain... So the women started shedding one set of constraints as they acquired a new set. That seems sort of obvious to me. But how that happened, you can't find any evidence of a... Uh, male-dominated conspiracy to make that happen. Mm. Um, no, and, and women certainly yeah. enforce it, too. It's not just guys. Right, exactly. Um, if anything, the hairlessness norm is spreading to men and boys. Indeed, um, indeed. It, We're going to talk about that in just a second. Oh, great. And it also, women, uh, again, very stratified by race and uh, class and region and religion and all other kinds of dimensions have been controlled long before hair removal practices kind of took off. So it might be a technique of social control, but certainly at this point, women are involved in perpetuating it as as well as men. Um, and women benefit from it economically um, in some ways that I try to talk about in the book as small business owners, as cosmetic product developers, as physicians themselves and so on. So it's it's a much more complicated story than just men making women remove their hair. I think you hinted at one factor that influences body image, you know, enormously and has changed in gigantic ways over the last hundred or so years, and that is the spread of reproducible images. Uh, 150 years ago or so, what did you see in the way of imagery if you lived in a typical, say, American small town You'd see illustrations in books, you know, etchings and stuff. You might see the occasional Greek-style bust at the city hall, you know, or statue, a uh, few images of nudes. But you would not be absolutely bombarded by images of bodily perfection uh, every waking moment, right? The way That's we are right. now. That's right. That's right. Um, and both the number and type and uh, availability, That's it's all changed so so radically. And the internet obviously uh, just expands that. Um, now you have you know access to a global array of images at any moment instantaneously if you have internet access. So it's, yeah, no, it's, it's changed markedly. And one of the kind of big effects I trace there is the increasing um, availability, the ready availability of pornography across markets, not just in urban markets now, but in, uh, you know, rural environments and so on. Um, and that's certainly changed ideas about um, normalcy and desirability and, and so on in ways that I try to trace in the book. For sure. Uh, and, and that and just general mass media certainly explain how any physical ideal could have a lot of power, but that doesn't explain why the physical ideal has become one of the perfectly smooth, hairless body. Uh, in fact, porn used to be very hairy, right? Ron right. Jeremy, probably the most famous porn star of all, was nicknamed <laughs> the Hedgehog. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And as several people have pointed out to me, there's a uh, there's a resurgence of, of hairiness as a pornographic ideal Is that even right? now. Yes. I didn't know so that. There's, yeah. Wow. I had my own theory, which is why porn got, you know, started removing pubic hair. It was just, you know, the sort of force of the marketplace of competition. There was nothing left to take off. And it was just one more thing to denude, right? Yes. Uh, well, and I and I talk about this in the book as connected to a, a, so a pretty specific set of um, regulatory changes um, that allowed 
pornography to be exhibited in different places than it had been previously and in different ways. And one effect, exactly as you're suggesting, was uh, increased competitiveness in the market. And especially genital explicitness was one byproduct of that. Um, and it, as I try to argue in the book, this is this is connected to the increasing rise of um, pubic hair removal in recent decades. But I think that can be tied not just to the availability of images, but also to the regulation of um, uh, what's called obscene material and changes in that in the American sphere in the last couple, three decades or so. So why do you think the the feminist hair rebellion, I mean, at least among those feminists who chose to go that route, and not all did, certainly, I mean, really did not last? You know, now, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find many feminists who are like not shaving somewhere, right? Oh, you can find a few. A few, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Old school feminists, sure. But, um, yeah. I think uh, this isn't the whole answer to that question, but a not trivial answer to this question is the same um, rhetoric that second wave feminisms began to use about control of the body that extended um, from reproductive rights, you know, demands for abortion, um, safe and accessible abortion, demands to birth control, demands to um, safe and and woman-centered medical care, all those sorts of things, um, extended into cosmetic care of the body, including hair removal. And that language of my body, my choice that we know from abortion politics came into elective care of the body, you know, treatment of the head, hair on the head, treatment of the skin, treatment of the teeth and so on. What happened, though, is that same idea, which in the early 70s, feminists were using as the rationale for no longer shaving. It's my body, my choice. I don't have to do this tedious, daily, painful ritual was pretty easily co-opted by manufacturers of cosmetic products as a way to push more <laughs> cosmetic rituals. It's your body, your choice. Um, go ahead and treat yourself in this way. Um, this is a luxury, a way to practice self-care and so on. And so that same rhetoric that was really developed as a move of political opposition was pretty readily brought into a sphere of consumer culture. And I noticed in this period, hair in just popular women's magazines was less frequently referred to as medically excessive in that way that it had been in the early 20th century and began to be referred to as simply unwanted. So it's your choice. It's not the physician's choice anymore. Um, but this is a way you can practice self love and self-care and so on. And I think you see that today in in the spa industry. You know, it's usually presented to customers of all genders now as a way to practice um, self, self-care. Um, you deserve it, that sort of thing. It's your choice. It's your body. <laughs> you deserve a excruciatingly painful <laughs> yeah. bikini waxing or whatever. Or the, yes. the male version, which is I'm... what, back crack and sack? Yes, yes, yes. I'm laughing, but I also don't want I don't want to discount this. Um, so many people I talked to working on this book, so much of the social science research that has looked at this, people of all genders, again, it's not merely people who identify as women, who practice hair removal, even kinds that are manifestly painful, describe it as a form of 
personal enhancement as mm-hmm. a way to feel good about themselves. And it's easy to say, well, they're just practicing what we might call false consciousness. They're just wrong. But I think that's that's um well it begs the question as to why it's considered enhancement though that's right that's right and and i think people subjectively do experience it as a form of self-love and a form of personal enhancement it can't be discounted as a motivation um that people report feeling not just cleaner or more sexually attractive but something even stronger than that um people describe themselves as feeling more like themselves once they've had their hair removed. So it's very powerful kind of emotional response to it. Let's talk about the fact that this has only, I think, in the last 20, 25 years, gone from a primarily female preoccupation to a male one as well. Guys did not worry about their chest hair when I was young. They just didn't, <laughs> not to mention their genital hair. But now guys are getting waxed. They're, you know, shaving and depilitating. There is nair for men. I don't know how long that's been around. Um, And it seems to go hand in hand with all the other things that guys are now doing that used to be almost entirely female in the past. Eating disorders, all kinds of body dysmorphia, right? Yeah. Guys are taking a lot of steroidal type supplements. I mean, this has become widespread among young men to build muscle and look more like the male ideal of our day. Why do you think that's happened? Uh, Well, in the book, I I try to trace a bunch of different reasons for this. But one that's, I think, most frequently overlooked are just the really basic uh, political economic shifts. So since the 1970s, um, more and more of the U.S. economy, it's now by far the vast percentage, has moved out of traditional manufacturing sectors and into the service economy and uh, health and wellness in the broadest sense has been a massive part of that growth. Um, so what you could call the personal care industry or the spa industry, there's you know different segments of it, has been a, a big driver in kind of where economic expansion is happening since the 1970s on. And in a just very basic way, as once the kind of women's market got saturated, you'd sold women as many lipsticks or as many um, hair removers or as many, you know, hair straighteners as you were going to, those industries started tapping new populations. And they've started reaching out to older and older women, um, to younger and younger girls. And this has been kind of hitting popular attention lately, the kind of growth of the spa market for really young girls, you know, starting at ages four and up, but primarily men, you know, it's been the the obvious untapped segment of the population. Um, and there's been a pretty deliberate and intentional move to market some of these personal care practices to men as a way to kind of expand the market. And it's been very successful in all the ways that you were charting, you know, men are accounting for more and more the growth of, um, just speaking about hair removal, of hair removal practices. And you can go on YouTube and find tons of videos of men uh, waxing themselves and taking videos of it and posting it to the web to kind of try to entice other men to do the same thing. You must have spent so many hours on the Internet <laughs> good probing, hours, good probing hours, the dark good crevices of the human body. <laughs> um, yes. I, you know... The internet is an amazing and terrifying thing in this regard. For, <laughs> for a historical researcher, yes. That's right. 
Um, you mentioned health and wellness, and I just want to point out at the risk of stating the obvious how how much concerned we are with symbols of health and wellness that have nothing to do with or little to do with the actual state of our health, whether it's disguising the signs of aging, which has nothing to do with longevity, or tanning, especially in the old days when that was considered a healthy thing, not healthy at all, to, you know, removal of hair, which has, I think, very little to do with health. The only the only thing I could figure out that has any health implications at all, again, is the spread of crab lice, which supposedly has gone down among people who <laughs> who, who get their crotches waxed. But mm-hmm. that's not exactly a major public health issue. <laughs> so, so we tend to focus so much on the symbols of whatever we consider to be cleanliness and healthiness, uh, as opposed to the, the fundamentals sometimes. Oh, I hear what you're saying, but I but I also think I want to disagree in that one of the reasons that hair is so fascinating to me is in much the same way that it sort of complicates or mangles easy ideas about um, racial difference. It also complicates easy ideas about health. Um, and from the 19th century on, you can find physicians kind of struggling uh to deal with the fact that so many of the specifically women they were seeing were so emotionally and psychologically distraught by unwanted hair that they were a danger to their own health. Oh. I mean, in the immediate way of oh, we don't killing disagree, themselves. Rebecca. Right. We don't disagree. Yeah. I mean, that's, of course, because of the the stigma that was attached to being hairy. But would you say that being too hairy is, is a genuine threat to bodily, you know, functioning and and, and longevity and, you know, all of that? Well, for women living in the actual world, it, it has psychologically been manifestly right, right yeah. psychologically. Now, did the hair itself um, was the hair itself the protagonist there? Um, no, obviously, you know something about social social norms was. But given that they don't live in an ideal world, they live in the you know the actual world where this actual stigma actually exists. Um, it was a real health threat to them. You know, they experienced it as a real health threat, and the physicians recognized this. So even physicians who understood that the x-ray was potentially lethal, for instance, would sometimes recommend x-ray hair removal if they thought that their patients might otherwise do injury to themselves. So you can see that the physicians themselves were wrestling with what is health here? You know, Um, they could wish that the women didn't feel that sort of psychological distress, but given that they did... What's the right outcome? And the the more contemporary analogy here is there's there's lots of good research on this. When women are told they have a cancer, even a fatal cancer, in a shocking number of cases, and again, people have done systemic research on this, their primary concern is when they'll lose their hair from the treatment for the cancer. The primary concern isn't even, you know, the prognosis for the spread of the cancer. The primary concern is when will I have unwanted hair loss and how wow. to understand that. Um, you know, wow. these are these are real people experiencing the real psychological distress of hair out of place. Um, and uh, the physicians who've written about this realize then to manage the health of these women, you have to manage those ideas about hair. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sympathetic to that. 
and I understand that, you know, whatever a societal norm is, if you deviate from it, you can feel pain and distress and that can have severe consequences. But the question I'm raising is whether the norm should be changed in some cases. A good example is homosexuality. You know, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists treating homosexuality in earlier decades may have had their patients' best interests in mind because they knew that it, uh, if untreated, if allowed to be gay, they would ruin their lives. But of course, we, we now think that the whole societal standard was what was screwed up. Not the, I, I not think the it's an excellent analogy. Yeah, yeah, I think it's an excellent analogy. And, and obviously, I, I wrote the book to try to highlight some of the violence of these social norms that we take for granted. Um, so yes, I'm, I'm right with you in, in that respect. But I think we, we too often can kind of veil some of the politics of those norms by simply saying, well, this is truly about health, or this is not about health, where I think even the word health itself is one of those, um, uh, the mechanism by which we spread these social norms. It's certainly, that's the case with hair removal, right? By naming some things as medically excessive, mm-hmm. we normalize opposition to all body hair. Um, and that's what I'm trying to highlight. Health itself doesn't do all the critical work that we might want it to do. It sometimes is itself the vehicle for perpetuating some of these damaging mm. norms in the first place. We seem to want a, a lot these days to turn our bodies into perfect objects, mm. almost mm-hmm. in a revolt against the messiness of biology itself. All the imperfections that real bodies have, the smells, the leaks, the welts, the breaks, the wrinkles, you know, all of those things we wish would go away. And of course, we Mm -hmm. wish aging and death would go away too. Mm -hmm. So why not obsess over some superficial detail like a few stray hairs, you know? (laughs) I I hear what you're saying. And the the last chapter of the book is talking about some research that actually hasn't uh, been put into consumer culture yet, but is, you know, people are actively working on it, which is finding genetic solutions to unwanted hair, trying to intervene at the molecular level. Yes, the um, next step. Yes, with hair growth. And in that chapter especially, I, I think... It's it's very much about what what you're saying. Um, this kind of drive we have to control the living mortal body uh, more generally. Um, and I I don't talk about this in the book, although you know I'll just speculate here. I do think in American culture specifically that is tied up with a an aversion to death, and that if we if we really want to tackle a lot of those kind of bodily norms and the laborious, very painful or costly practices that go along with them, we'd go a long way by just getting much more comfortable with the inescapability of death. But that's a tall order. Um, and I don't know if we're going to get there via hair removal. <laughs> but that's that was definitely on my mind as I as I was working on the book, just how much of this was about, especially a consumer culture's reluctance to look the fact of death in the face. Rebecca, I've uh, avoided asking you the question that apparently a lot of people asked you when they heard you were writing this book. I was going to, and then I (laughs) read your description of this fact and thought, well, gee, do I want to subject you to this yet again? What I'd rather do is just raise the question and wonder why it is that people even asked you this. And that is, what's your backstory? What is it with you and and body hair? Is there something personal about this? I'm not asking you that question, by the way. That's good. 
<laughs> they would not have asked you this had you investigated any number of other human behaviors, probably. Right, right, right. It's it's a fascinating thing. The more I think about this, the more fascinating I think it is. So, you know, we have a lot of biographies of William James, and every year somebody writes another biography of William James. You could pick your favorite person from American history. The same is true. You know, do we need another biography of Thomas Jefferson? Do we need another biography of whomever? And Nobody ever asked those people, what's your what's your fascination with Thomas Jefferson? What's your fascination yeah, yeah. with William James? <laughs> um, and as I noted in the book, I've written I've written two other books in nonfiction. People never cared why I was interested in those subjects, even when it seemed to me sort of obvious to wonder why an author might pursue one of those topics. Um, but nobody expressed any curiosity. And with this one, I can't send anything out for academic review without the reviewers writing, could you say a little bit about why you're interested in hair? And I, you know, is there some just basic purient interest in how hairy I am or am not? I guess that's part of the story, but wow. it doesn't seem like that could explain all of it. Um and I don't know what to think. Yeah. And if you had written a book on head hair, you know, in its changing fashions, no one would ask you that. Or fewer people would ask me that, yeah. I think. I, I can't quite figure it out. I may go back to what we were talking about earlier, just this, this very intriguingly deep um, fascination and revulsion with body hair specifically, even, you know, over and above other bodily functions, bodily elements, um, there's really something about hair over, again, over and against blood or semen or head hair or teeth, you know, other extractable or circulatable bodily parts. But I, <laughs> I as I said, I've worked on this for a long time and I've yet to fully understand um, the depth of that response. But I did experience it as an author with people interested in my attachment to the topic. And as I suggest in the book, my story isn't particularly interesting. I'd share it if there was a kind of, you know, rosebud moment that explained <laughs> why this mattered to me. But there there really isn't. Um, it's not that interesting. So. Uh, well, here's a slightly different but still personal question. What is your, your own feeling about the work of body hair removal? How, oh, how many hours in your in your life total do you think you'll have put into it by by the time you're you're done? <laughs> oh gosh, um, probably <laughs> probably a kind of stupid number of hours in the end. I end the book by saying, uh, and this is partly where the title came from, that we're all kind of plucked in this regard, in that there's no good way out of this. You know, you can shave and then you're spending time and money and expense shaving. You cannot shave, as I've tried doing, and then you're spending a lot of time and emotional expense explaining and dealing with the fact that you're not shaving. You know, confrontations with people on the street, confrontations with employers. Really? Really? Case, Has confrontations that happened to you? with students. Sure, sure. People say, so, why don't you shave your legs or your arms? Oh, or something? gosh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I don't mean just say it. I mean, you know, you can be you can be attacked verbally or physically um, if you're non non normative in visible ways. As many people who, uh, you know, are crossing gender norms or racial norms or, or sexual norms are very familiar with who might be listening to your show. But that's certainly the case with hair because it's so visible. You know, if you're presenting as a woman and you have a visible mustache, you're going to hear about it. And that gets exhausting. So is it worth the exhaustion or the pain or the expense to shave it? Is it worth the exhaustion to deal with being counter-normative? I don't think there are easy or good answers to this. And I certainly haven't 
come up with them. Uh, the one thing I can say is individual responses will only get you so far. Um, in this, as with so many other social issues, collective responses are more effective, which is why I'm trying to bring it to a broader conversation through the book. Um, you just <laughs> you hit the wall trying to tackle these things all on your own. You You need to join forces with other people. Well, Rebecca, it has been fascinating, and I realize right now as I stroke my chin that I need a shave. <laughs> only, only if you really think so, I guess. So thank you so much, Robert. It's been delightful. Rebecca Herzig is Professor of Interdisciplinary Studies and the Chair of Women and Gender Studies at Bates College. Her new book is Plucked, A History of Hair Removal. And uh, just a few final remarks what usually happens in these interviews uh, is that I think a lot about the subject beforehand, and then I do the interview, and time runs out, and I am left with a lot more to think about, questions that I wish I'd had time to ask, ideas I wish I'd had time to float, and things I wish I'd said better. For instance, uh, when I said that we seem to want to make perfect objects of ourselves, I think uh, an even better term would have been products, because that's really how it goes these days commercial culture having infiltrated our sense of self, so we're all preoccupied with how marketable we are. And a good product uh, in this age of mass production is something that is uniform, it is free from irregularities and oddities. You don't want bumps, you don't want blemishes, you don't want bristly bits. And that is the problem with body hair. It is scrubby, it is patchy and uneven, it is wild, and it varies a lot on different people. Whereas a head hair, which we generally like and want more of, well, it can be sculpted and shaped and styled in all sorts of ways and brought uh, into conformance. That's the opposite of body hair in that sense. And, of course, once it does get scraggly and uneven on, say, guys who are losing their hair, many of them opt for the smooth, sleek regularity of a shaven pate, Better to be bald and shiny than bristly and patchy. And, uh, you know, the extent to which the marketplace has driven our fixation with body hair should not be underestimated. To read Rebecca's history of body hair removal is to see just how much our insecurities are fed by commercial interests of all kinds. Did you know, for instance, that those chemical depilatories that we talked about that uh, started to be sold en masse in the early 20th century were actually invented for industrial use. As uh, slaughterhouses became bigger and more mechanized, they needed better ways to strip the fur from carcasses. The old-fashioned uh, way of dipping the body into, like, boiling water and then peeling it by hand, uh, that wasn't fast enough. So they came up with chemicals, really strong chemicals that dissolve the hair. And then they realized, oh, we can sell these to the ladies and all we got to do is make women feel even worse about being hairy. Same thing uh, goes with shaving. Uh, before the 20th century, women apparently didn't do a lot of shaving, as Rebecca says, because it was a bloody and uh, dangerous affair with straight razors. But then around the turn of the century, a guy named King Camp Gillette, his real name, uh, came up with the safety razor and made it possible to shave without butchering yourself. Uh, first marketing to men, but then realizing that, oh, yeah, we can sell these to women as well uh, with advertising campaigns that reinforce the idea of hairlessness as the norm. And so it goes with all sorts of other uh, commercial hair removal techniques. 
And uh, of course, there is uh, one other big force, at least one other big force feeding into all of this that uh, is almost too obvious, uh, and maybe that's why I didn't even bring it up in the interview, our increasing uh, youth fetish, which has got adults wanting to look ever younger, aspiring, uh, in the case of body hair, it seems, to a state of prepubescence, a time before things started sprouting all over the place. And uh, one other omission, uh, we didn't talk about what is perhaps the hottest haha technique for hair removal these days, the use of lasers to burn away the hair follicles. Rebecca does cover uh, laser hair removal in her book, along with its unintended consequences. Um, one technique she doesn't get to, though, is, is one that I discovered all on my own when I was looking for a suitable tune to end this show with. It is subliminal hair removal, the use of recordings like this one from an outfit called Brainwave Mind Technologies. Now, I have no idea how it's supposed to work, but... I guess there are subliminal messages embedded in these soothing sea sounds, and they are either telling uh, your hair to fall out of its own accord or to stop growing, or they are telling you to get busy burning, shaving, lasering, or whatever. I invite you to keep listening and uh, see for yourself. Me, I am out of here, but I will be back next week with another edition of the 7th Avenue Project. And, of course, you can always visit us online and listen to past shows at 7thAvenueProject.com.